If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to deliver one to you. The fourth book, or fifth book, I'm sorry, of the Bible is Deuteronomy, and we're in chapter 16. Since being here in England for roughly four or five years now, I've had the privilege of watching people who have their roots deep. And things are very different for them. For the sake of a person who sort of shows up here and they're, and they're new, you know, they're, they're here on their honeymoon. I mean, do you realize we get to live in the place people save up their whole lives to come and visit once? That's a crazy thought. But there are some people, it's sort of like their grandfather, their great-great-grandfather, you know, fought in medieval times. And, you know, it's like they watch things like Robin Hood and they think, oh, that's my great-great-grandfather, that kind of thing. And you listen to the depth of understanding about a specific place. Uh, I think about in Scotland, one of the pastor friends of mine there, and when he speaks about Scotland, he speaks about it. It's almost like you can hear the drums and the fife playing as he begins to speak with a tear in his eye of his country and how deep and meaningful it is to him. And it's so much more than a place visited. It's so much more than an exciting spot. It's a place that sort of he breathes out. And you'd think that if the sun shone the right way, half of his face would just turn blue, that kind of thing. And, and the reason I say that is, is that as a Christian, we can start and we certainly need to, more than anything, understand who this Jesus is that we've surrendered our lives to. But the natural tendency is to be lazy in understanding things in their depth. And as we go through the Old Testament, we get that beautiful, rich foundation of how this whole thing bottlenecks in such a beautiful way with Jesus. That we don't look at this as if, oh, well, this is sort of like studying a foreign culture somewhere so that we can win something in some trivia game. And this is, this is the forerunners. This is the foundation that is that is sort of making its way to the greatest foundation that will ever be laid with the cornerstone being Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to go to the Lord in prayer right away. We went through, if um, those of you who were here last week, the first eight verses. We'll kind of recap those for a moment, but uh, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I don't, I don't want anything said in, in a way that we wouldn't get to develop anything that would be unnecessary. But Lord, you know exactly the, every need represented in this room. You know every heart. You know every great grief and every great encouragement. You know every challenge. And Lord, you as our victory today, I pray you would meet us in a profound way. That you would, Lord, give us a supernatural ability to understand. Jesus, even as you open the eyes of your disciples that they could understand the scriptures, we pray the same for ourselves today. So may we worship you with our attention. But may we worship you as well with our intention to intend to put into practice that which you want to speak to us bespoke to each of us, but also, Lord, corporately as a body, as a family, as a church. 
May we worship you with our retention as we seek to hold your word and to live it out beyond the, the walls of this building. For where most of our life is lived. So we've come here, Lord, you've ebbed the tides of all of our responsibilities outside of these walls for the next hour to hear your voice. Pulled us into the locker room so that we could refine our actions. That we could further seek counsel, but also, Lord, further seek your power. So have your way. I commit every second of this to you and pray that you would immerse me in your spirit. That you would be seen, not me, and that you would empower me in such a way that every one of us could be personally spoken to. So, Lord, let your word burst open and come alive before each of us. And do all that you intend your word to do now. Jesus, within, with your name here and by your name, we approach our Father at the throne of grace. Thank you for being our high priest, tempted in every way, yet without sin, sympathetic to our weaknesses but perfect in sacrifice. So in your name we approach now. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Uh, in my own life, by the way, I've been, and this isn't for doctrinal sake, but rather for discipline, I've been really taken by this sort of three hours of prayer. Not like the idea is that three hours of each day I need to be praying. Uh, I should be praying without ceasing, be in constant communication to speak and to listen to my God. But how the Jewish people had set aside three different specific times, one at the beginning of the day, the Shacharit, the one during the middle called the Mircha, and then one at the end called the Aviril and Ma'ariv. And the idea was quite simple. And we know it as the third, the sixth, and the ninth hours of prayer. We see it much in Scripture, specifically in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. I recognize each of us had a theme. The first, that Shacharit, we would get up in the morning, if we were an old traditional Jewish boy, we would we'd get up in the morning and when we were able to be able to see within two arms distance a familiar friend and recognize them, we would actually begin then a shacharit. And the idea was, the, the theme was God give. But we didn't start with that. Good morning, give me God. The idea is we started with praise. We started with, with being in his scriptures. It would be the Psalm 145, Psalm 84. We'd get into these things and we'd listen to the voice of God. We'd seek for God to transform our hearts and minds. And we'd say, right now, God, give me what was necessary for the day. I find it interesting during this time where people would be praying this third hour, this shacharit would be the same time, by the way, in Mark 15.25, we read that Jesus would be crucified. I find it interesting in Acts 2.15 that it was the third hour where God would give His Holy Spirit, pour forth His Holy Spirit upon the people that were praying up in the upper room, 120 roughly. The second of those at the sixth hour, or roughly noon, Shacharit, God speak. I find it interesting. In John 4.6, it's where Jesus meets the woman in the well during this time of prayer where He reveals Himself as the Messiah. It is in Matthew 27:45 where darkness will begin to cover the ground where Jesus is hanging on the cross and begins to speak. It is Acts chapter 10 verse 9 where Peter receives the vision Peter kill and eat. And of course that beautiful we love Peter for things like this. He says no Lord on three occasions. Who says no and Lord next to each other like that? 
for which Peter will discover that God wants to save not just the Jew, but the Gentile as well. The last of those three hours of prayer, the, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., or again, the evening sacrifice, the Ma'ariv or the Avrit, is God save. It was God give, God speak, and then God save. And interesting, Matthew 27, 46, it will be when Jesus dies. In Acts 3, 1, it will be where the lame man is made whole. In Acts 10, 30, it will be where Cornelius, the centurion, and his household will all respond to the gift of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that, the reason I'm even bringing this up is, is to develop even in, even in a small way is because here in this particular chapter, God gives us our three major mandatory feasts. And I think it's interesting because as the three hours God give, God speak, and then God save, we have our three times Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Pesach, or we know it as, Pesach is as the Passover, Shavuot as the tabernacle, I'm sorry, as the uh, Pentecost, and then Sukkot as the tabernacles. And we'll see those second two now developed. But I, I think it's interesting in all of this how that's, that God, we start with God give, and it's during the Passover that Jesus again will be crucified. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave. And the greatest act of love is giving that we would have life. Today what we'll see is in these second and third ones that they bookend the aspect of a harvest. I do find it interesting that the first great harvest is how we would go to Shavuot or that Feast of Pentecost or we'll see here the Feast of Weeks. And during this time, by the way, the Holy Spirit will empower His church and they will, become, well, they will begin to become His mouthpiece there in Acts 2 at Pentecost. These events that people have been gathering for 1,400 years and God had been preparing them and we're saying God speak and I think, wow, God begins to speak through His church through the power of His Holy Spirit in Acts 2 at Shavuot or at Pentecost. The third of them, God save, well, we'll develop that in a moment. Let me give you this, and we'll dive into our text. Our context in our, in our local context here is that God is showing us how to treat family. Or if you remember from the last two chapters, you know, first it's the issue, of course, of, of forgiving the debtor, giving to the needy, and don't forget your heavenly Father. The perfect sacrifice will be required. And, but I look at it and I start to realize, well, how does that play into now this? Understand, God is reiterating this information. He's taught us through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers a lot of these things. These feasts are not introduced here. They're reintroduced. And now I get the idea that the reason God is doing this isn't to reteach the theme, but or should say reteach the principle, but rather now to bring them in theme so we can understand a much larger principle. Follow me on this for just a second. The idea here is that God is really, in the simplest sense, building society. And what if we did what he shows us here? Listen, it started with man and God and a perfect sacrifice. That was the core. That was the cornerstone. That is the first circle. It is the ground floor foundation. Peter would teach us no other foundation can be laid but that of Jesus Christ. So when people say, well, the church was built on Peter, I have a problem with that because Peter knew better when he said the church can't be built on anything but Jesus. Jesus would quote from someone, someone would say the, builder, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the very stone from which the entire building is held together. And understand, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, God willing today, I will give you that opportunity to say yes. I won't embarrass you, I won't dangle you or hang you in front of people, but I want you to know it starts with this. God so loved you, He sent His Son to die for your sins and mine so that all of our guilt could be vanquished and fully paid for. He rose from the dead and now offers you a brand new life forgiveness and purity, all of the things that our hearts crave. And he's simply looking for, a, for, for, to be honest, for a yes. 
of receiving of that gift. He's offering it. He's asking for your permission. And it starts with that. And that's what he's shown us here two chapters ago. And then from this core, man building upon the rock of God, then he starts building the family. You forgive the debtor, you give to the needy. The idea again, don't forget dad, because the idea is it always goes back to the heavenly father, because these are not coincidental or, if you will, <clears throat> excuse me, these are not independent circles, they're concentric circles. The first one builds on the second, just the same way that if we were to build a house today, you start on the ground floor and then you need to add the next floor. It isn't like you built the ground floor and then you put the next floor somewhere on the property, but rather that that next floor has to be built on top of the ground floor. And so the first, the ground floor is that personal core, me and God made right by the perfect sacrifice. The second level then is I want to start developing a family. I want to build you into a family. I get it. So in other words, let me say it this way. The family must be built upon those that are built upon the rock. It starts, my life needs to be built upon the rock. The family is, my family must be built upon those that are built upon the rock. And then he goes and he moves from that then to those within your gates, your neighbors, your neighborhood, or if you will, the church. And can I say the church must be built by families that are built by people who are built upon the rock. And then ultimately as we move forward beyond today, he'll move us to judges, to the jurisprudence of those judges, and ultimately kings. And might I say, legislature must be built upon the church that must be built upon the individual or the family that must be built upon the individuals that are built upon the rock. Everything gets built upon the next. The same way that you can't learn calculus if you don't learn your numbers. And with that in mind, we move into our three feasts. Our first feast that we covered of our three landmark events is he speckles, if you will, or punctuates our year with three times for one week God says, I want you over to my house for a barbecue. Think that through. What God would invite you to his house to feed you, to celebrate and rejoice with you? Well, the God who created you for fellowship. A God who created you to be with him. A God who created you to enjoy him. There's the idea. And he starts with this. Everything starts with the beginning of this, this Passover. It's an everlasting covenant or testament. They tell of the three most important convening moments in our, in our month, I'm sorry, in our year, the same way that the three most important moments where God convenes with man or intervenes with man throughout all of history. The first of the Passover. God's relationship with man defined by God sending the death of the Lamb of God, the death of the firstborn so that we could be delivered from the hand of the enemy in the land of bondage. It's definitive. But the minutiae isn't developed here because, again, the key is theme. So hear me. Here were those key points, those seven, that God required of the Passover according to this. It must be the Lamb of God, must be in Jerusalem, must be no leaven or sinless, must not remain overnight, must be outside of the gates that the sacrifice must take place, must die at twilight, and then must end in rest. And, of course, each one of those points is to Jesus. And now we remove to the two remaining feasts, the Feast of Weeks, 9 through 12, and the Feast of Tabernacles, 13 through 17. Look at it with me. Verse 9. You shall count seven weeks for yourself and begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. 
You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who was within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who were among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. That's our first of the two. Verse 13. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and your winepress, and you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place in which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely... Rejoice. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. Now, follow me on this. There are three specific, three specific feasts. God says, if you're an able-bodied Jewish boy, I want you there. They revolve around this in the simplest sense. The first is birth and deliverance, and the other two bookend the harvest. It's that simple. The first one focuses again on the deliverance from the land of slavery, from the hand of the enemy. That was what we covered. Now he moves to the two that we might say are the feast, or I should say the harvest feasts. In verse 9, he starts with this one. And notice it tells us, and we'll just pick out some key points and put this whole thing together. In verse 9, he tells us this. You shall count seven weeks from your, for yourself, Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Now, according to the book of Exodus, when he starts to give us these particular feasts, please follow me on this, it's quite simple. You count them from the day of the, of the Sabbath. That's a Saturday. And you, you count one day and then seven weeks. Seven sevens. And thus it's the Feast of Sevens. Well, of course, that's the word for weeks. Now, in, in the, when this is translated into the Greek, we call it the, the, uh, uh, the Septuagint. The word then is, is actually the word we get Pentecost from. It means the 50 because it's 50 days total. Pentecost must start on a Sunday. Think it through. It's seven sevens, that's seven weeks, plus a day. It starts on a Saturday. Seven weeks still makes it a Saturday. And then the following day is a Sunday. This starts on a Sunday. Now, the way that it starts is it cannot begin without the Passover because at the Passover, really this kind of unusual thing begins called the moment of first fruits. Now, first fruits are not the first harvest, but they're the hint of the harvest. And the idea is simple. Every man who had a field would walk through his field to find the very best. So let's say you were growing barley, which was one of those things that would actually blossom early. It was one of the early parts of the harvest. And you looked to find the biggest, the beefiest, the nicest, the meatiest. And you kind of looked and you said, yeah, yeah, that right there, that looks good. And you kind of pulled that and you took that with you then to Jerusalem. And this thing, it was this which was the best of your best, you took, and when you went to Jerusalem, you took it and you did something kind of strange with it. You threw it on the ground. And then you went like this. And you said to God, as the first fruits are holy, may the harvest so be. And the idea is simple. I want the very best with the idea that if I can give God that very best right here, and lay it before him and let it be crushed into the ground. Well, may the entire harvest be as good as that. 
Now, from that moment, you count your seven sevens. From that moment. So listen, you can't even begin the harvest without first the first fruits. Because without the first fruits, you, can't, you don't have no reference to count to those 50 days or those seven weeks plus a day. So hear me on this. Because when I get to 1 Corinthians, Paul seizes upon this opportunity as he speaks to the Corinthians. He says, that whole concept of first fruits, well, you took it and you threw it down because it was the very, very best. And you threw it down and you did this. And you crushed it into the ground and said, may that blossom up into an amazing harvest. He says, that's Jesus. He says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have been killed or those who die. Because he understand the assumption is that if the best were laid into the ground, the best would rise up and harvest. Does that make sense? Now understand, at the Passover, they were all taking that first fruits and they were throwing it in the ground and that started the countdown to the beginning of the harvest feast. We knew that it was starting now. Time is up. Interesting. Jesus told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until he empowered them. They don't know when it is. And I think that would be kind of funny. I, I, if I could see God roll film on certain events, that would be one. Because we don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. All we know is God's going to empower us. And we have Old Testament examples of guys who God is empowered by this Holy Spirit. And we see them and they make the, the world is changed because a guy is empowered by God. And we're all sitting around, 120 of us in a room going, you feel anything? You see anything? Someone's stomachs rumbles. We go, is that it? You know what I mean? In the beginning, we're afraid to go to the toilet because what happens? We know when Thomas left and Jesus came and he breathed on his disciples and Thomas wasn't there. You think, dang it, I should never have gone. You know, I mean, I would want to leave. But we don't know that God is setting us up. And understand, he could have poured his Holy Spirit upon those 120 any time he wanted. But he waited until the Pentecost happened because it was the feast, hear me, of the first great harvest. That's the point. And we want to celebrate the first great harvest. And for 50 days, we're waiting to celebrate the first great harvest. Are you following me? Now, listen. What he tells us here is simple. He says, when that time happens, when there's that crushing of the greatest part, where there's the throwing in the ground of the best for it to rise up and bring forth the harvest, I would expect the harvest to be as good as that which was laid down and crushed into the ground. Do you realize what you are? Do you realize you're part of the harvest? Jesus had said, as he looks and he sees these beautiful white covered, or these heads covered in white with these beautiful, you know, if you will, the, the head coverings, and they're coming before, and he looks and he says, of all places, Mary he says, oh, you think it's months before the harvest? Take a look. He says, the harvest is ripe right in front of you. Jesus wasn't speaking of barley. He was speaking of men. He goes, you know what? The idea is simple. Though the first fruits be laid in, the harvest should be beautiful and plentiful. Beloved, if you've said yes to Jesus Christ, welcome to being part of the harvest. I do find it interesting that if you were to ask people, and you learn a lot about an individual by saying, what's the greatest thing that takes place in Acts chapter 2? And some will say, well, the Holy Spirit comes upon his disciples. That's beautiful. Some would say they begin to speak in tongues. Well, that's cool too. But on that day, 3,000 people were going to hell when they woke up and they went to sleep in the arms of God. 
could there be a greater miracle? If one had said yes, wouldn't that have been great? I mean, what would be a greater miracle? For you to be able to speak in another language, not that that's bad. For you to feel the power of God, not that that's bad. Or for your mother to get saved. And you know what God did in Acts chapter 2? When 3,000 people said yes to Jesus, it was the first great harvest. Do you see how God planned that out? If he had poured forth his spirit the day before, it wouldn't have been the feast of the first great harvest. God had been planning that for 1400, well, for a great longer time than that, but since this feast, it's 1400 years waiting for this moment. So listen to these details. So this is what he says. <clears throat> first of all, the Passover is required the first fruit. That's 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, verses 20 and 23, where he talks about Christ being the first fruits. And then in verse 10, he says this. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give to the Lord as the Lord your God blesses you. You do not give the work of your hands, but you give the offering of his blessing. Here's the difference. We don't, as Christians play the doctrinal game of ever saying you work for God, but in our hearts we almost play that game, don't we? It's like we've said yes to Jesus and then the Lord becomes our employer instead of our Father, instead of our love. And we're exhausted and we're tired and we start looking for results as if we're almost embarrassed because somehow we're equating success with how many people we've led to them or how many people have been delivered from drugs or whatever the case is. And we're like, God, look at what I've done for you. But nowhere in Scripture does God ever do that. He drew us in, adopted us as His own, and then says, follow me. And when he sends us, he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Understand, no place in it. He says, go do something for me. But rather, let's do something with me. So when we're talking about this offering, we are not offering to God something that's like, God, look at how hard I've worked for you. Boom, check it out. I'm so good. Well, rather, what we're saying is, Lord, thank you for the way that you've blessed this. And here's the difference. If I recognize what Scripture says, I am not gauging success by the results that God is responsible for. I am gauging success by obedience. I just hung out with you, Lord, and did whatever you told me with you. You did it through me anyways. And because you've blessed me, I want to give it back to you. None of this is mine. That's the point. So it tells us in verse 10, the requirement here is that it's of free will. We see the Lord's blessing and it turns us to bless him back. Verse 10, it says, then, regards to that. Verse 11, it says that the attitude is not one of sacrifice and of solemnity. It says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Have any of you been praying for anyone that you love and then watched them say yes to Jesus? Can there be a greater rejoicing than that? You know, when we get caught up in this world, we forget what the most important thing is and the greatest joy and the most wonderful gift is. And we get to the point where we'd rather have an iPhone 6 than a moment with the gospel and someone we love. Where in the world have we gone? But he says, man, when you start talking harvest, it should make you practically mental. There's only one feast that should make you happier, and that's the one here at the end we'll see in a moment. And I remind you, 
if it were the times of prayer, we would be saying, oh, God, speak. How do you think God wants to speak now? The enemy has no problem finding mouthpieces. Have you noticed that? The enemy has no problem recruiting spokesmen. The enemy has no problem developing people and putting them in profile places that speak as if they were examples of God, but with the greatest nonsense and hugest heresies that are available. They'll hand out pamphlets at every tube stop. They will come to your door while believers sit silently with the truth. Isn't it true that if you hear the name Jesus Christ out in the public, you assume it's blasphemy at that point? I mean, I'll be honest. Other than out of my own mouth, other than within the confines of of a setting like this, the majority of the time that I hear him spoken or his name spoken somewhere out in the public is someone who doesn't even seem to know him, but rather using it as a curse word, as a as a way because they've stubbed their toe or because they didn't catch the bus. I thought, how did they corner the market on his name and they don't even know him, apparently. But this feast should be caused great rejoicing. And let me ask you, right now, if you were to take inventory, who do you love the most that you're not confident knows Jesus? And who do you think he wants to recruit as his mouthpiece? You can't save them, but you can give them a choice. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite that is within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you. God wants everyone there so they could be part of the harvest. That is why in Acts 2 there were people from all over the known Roman world, the Middle East and Europe alike, gathered together and they say, wow, we hear these guys speaking in languages that are the languages of our hometown. That's strange. Turkey, Eastern, Western, Central Turkey. That of, of Greece. That of Italy. That of Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and the Yemen Gulf. All of those areas, and we hear people speaking in these languages, the wonderful works of God, and it draws them in like, what in the world is this? But it doesn't end there. It tells us here, notice, that the place must be specific and the place must be Jerusalem. That's been defined last week, which is at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. 1 Kings 9.3, 1 Kings 11.36 2 Kings 21, 4 and 7 tell us that God's name abides in Jerusalem. It is where his eyes and his heart will be perpetually. That's why the people still, the Jewish men, still worship at the retaining wall that we call the Western or Wailing Wall because they expect God's eyes and heart to be there. God promised that. And it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Don't forget where you came from. Do not detach the Pentecost from the Passover. That's the point. Do not detach the power of God to be his mouthpiece from the fact that that power was first displayed by saving you. Hear me before we move on. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 37 through 41. In verses 1 through 5, it says, On the day of Pentecost had fully come. That's the Feast of Weeks. They were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. 
Do you notice it doesn't say that they felt a, mush, a rushing mighty wind, but they heard one? Isn't that strange? Could you imagine hearing a rushing mighty wind but not feeling one? Because the point was not about what you felt. The point was about what you heard. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues that didn't lick them, but fell upon them as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. Because the point was, when Jesus said in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. That's what we should expect, to be as evidence, maturias, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did, what did they begin to do? They began to speak. They began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance, glossus. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And the men heard these languages, and they asked, what in the world is this? And Peter stands up to speak, and he quotes from Joel, Psalm 16 and 110 as well. And understand, hear me in this. Here's the way it worked. The Holy Spirit came upon, they began to speak, people asked why, and Peter brought forth the Word of God. You know what brought forth the harvest? It's quite simple. The Spirit of God empowered people to speak the Word of God. So, Verse 37, when they heard what Peter had said, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, every one of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and on that day... 3,000 souls were added to them, and that was our first great harvest. And just like the mincha, the afternoon, we say, God speak, and God spoke. Which takes us to our third and final feast here, the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is it called Tabernacles? Because we actually stayed in tents or tabernacles. Why? Because it was the feast of the last great harvest. It was called the Feast of Feasts. Because the harvest was concluded and they actually said following this would be a time of tribulation. The winter was a time of trouble. We understand that. Aren't we ready? I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for spring. I see the hint of, sum, of summer out there. I see the sun. I go running out there in a pair of short trousers. And I'm like, dang it. How could it be so sunny and not warm? I'm ready, man. I'm ready to collect my vitamin D. But there is a day, you know, when when the harvest is concluded and we gather all of our grain, we gather all of our grapes, and it is the time they call the Feast of Feasts because, let's be honest, it is also the time of weddings. When better to get married than a time where you know nothing will be required of you for months? The work's done. And because the work is done, you know, you just shack up. You hibernate with the bride of your youth. And you get alone and because no one can require anything of you because there's nothing left to do. But sit while the tribulation, while you're tucked away, safe and sound, while the world gets rough around you. So listen, verse 13. 
Observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and winepress. I find it interesting. Did you notice, by the way, that it wasn't that you just gathered from your wheat and you gathered from your grapes, but they had already been processed? That the wheat had been threshed, the grapes had been crushed. Verse 14 says, And you shall rejoice in your feast. Oh, God wants this to be a time. He wants the entire harvest to be a time of great joy. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless little widow, notice again those within your gates. This wasn't a time for the stranger. It was those that you were familiar with, those that were within your gates. And he says then, seven days you keep a sacred feast, a seven-day-long barbecue Now, I don't know where you come from, but I know some people like Bjorn and myself that are big on barbecue. I think seven days, that's just fine with me. Keep the fire going and we'll just... Hey, you know, if you're a vegetarian, I don't mean to offend you. We can barbecue asparagus. That's fine. But I'm telling you, kill it and grill it. Let's have some fun. And God knows. Can you imagine? God could have said, I want you to have a seven-day fast with me. We're not going to eat anything and we're going to stare at each other and contemplate our navels. But he doesn't. He says, come feast with me. Come celebrate with me. Come rejoice with me because the harvest is complete. Interesting in verse 15, look at it. We're bringing this around near to close. Seven days you keep this feast to the Lord, not around him, not just beside him, but to him, the Lord your God. But it says, in the place which the Lord chooses. How is that different from the other two times? The other two times it says, in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. Did you notice that? I mean, the place where he chooses to put his name is very clearly Jerusalem. So I recognize that when Passover comes, we need to be able to come to Jerusalem for that feast. When Pentecost comes, the beginning of the harvest, we come to Jerusalem because that's where he makes his name abide. But here it just says, a place he's picked out for us. Well, that's interesting because when you get to the book of Revelation, God makes really clear he does have a place picked out of us. But it's not the old Jerusalem. There's a new one. There's a place where we get to actually join with him. And it tells us this way, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Who wouldn't think that was a weird moment? And then after that, we who are alive and still remain will be caught up together in the clouds with him to meet the Lord in the air, We will therefore be forever with him. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So let me ask you, do those words encourage you? It all depends if your investments are this way or that way. Because Jesus says, behold, I come and my reward is with me. Man, if you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, then from that point on, he empowers you with his Holy Spirit. He gifts you with his word and he brings forth a harvest. You don't even know the harvest God is using you in. I don't even, I'm sure that every one of us are going to be floored when he actually shows us people that were like, that person was so cantankerous and resistant and so antithetical to being open. But then somewhere down the line, God, through his Holy Spirit, kept reminding him of what you said. Still a choice to be made, man. Jesus died for your sins so that you could have your guilt paid for, rose from the dead to give you a brand new life, and you have a choice to say yes or no to that. You go, well, I don't know about that. I don't know. I'm not ready for that. God says, well, you will be. 
And maybe that's the last time you saw that person on a bus or on a train or somewhere as he was sitting there, you know, playing for money. And the next thing you know, somewhere down the line, the Lord, you stand before him and the Lord says, it is a time to rejoice. This is the time of the wedding. This is the time where we get together when we, and, and the, all the fruit is laid before us and we rejoice and say, wow, look at how much there is. And that's the beauty. See, the reason why it's beyond the threshing floor is because at the threshing floor, you don't even know before that how much you really have. I mean, how much of it's the stalks, you know, the, the straw, the chaff that has to blow away. And you think, well, we have these giant piles, but we really don't know how much of it's really fruit. I mean, some of it is chaff. And with the grapes, you really don't know. I mean, they could look giant. Have you ever, have you ever done this? I mean, we have a juicer, and I really like it. I'm a big, I mean, coming from California, man, I like to juice things. Now, I'm, I'm a fruit juicer. I'm not the kind that I look and go, broccoli, what would that taste like? That's not where I'm at. Maybe that's you. That's cool. I don't know how you can juice like celery or a kale, but that's another story. But I've seen these things where they, have you ever done this? Maybe it's just me. Forgive me for the illustration then. But you see these like giant, like, you know, like basketball oranges, and you think, man, one of these is going to get me, this thing's going to give me a pitcher of juice. And you take the thing and you put it in, it's like, right? And then in the end of it all, you're like, this is, this is like three drops. The heck is this? I mean, it looked so promising. You know, I'm thinking, oh man, I feel like I could go, better get the bathtub, honey. That's what I'm thinking. And then you're like, wow, this thing's basically a, like a, a sultana is what it is, you know? How in the world did that happen? And the reason I say that is the idea of the, the grapes being brought past the wine press is there are those moments where you're like, how much of this really is going to become wine? And you, by this point, you realize all you're left with is the actual pure, unadulterated fruit. And you're standing there and you go, wow, look how much this really is. And well, I, I was hoping for this. And I don't know if I could climb to the top of this thing. See, that's the point, beloved. And you know what that's like. You invest in someone's life and sometimes you see them catch it and sometimes they're like, mm, I don't really know. Sometimes they seem so excited and they're like a firecracker. They're like, yes, Jesus, boom! And then where are they? They kind of just evaporated, you know? And you're like, oh, Lord, was that really fruit or was that kind of like they were excited for a moment? But you really don't know until that day. But on that day, there'll be no chaff. There'll be no seeds. There'll be no stems. There'll just be the fruit. And you'll go, whoa. I, I wonder in a moment like that if there'll be a moment where I'll kind of look around and go, oh, dang it. I was really hoping that person. I have a feeling I'll probably just be blown away. I go, you know, I'll try not to look and go, you? <laughs> really? Cool. Or, you know, you know and, and, and uh, prayerfully I'll have greater wisdom by that point. Now, follow me on this as we, as we close this up. And I want to kind of bring this in. Listen. Seven days. Sacred feast to the Lord, verse 15. To the Lord, your God in the place where he chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. You know why you're going to rejoice? Because I'm going to bless those hands of yours as you set them to work. I'm going to bless them. Hey, you know, can I just be honest with you? There are times where you set your hands, and I know we all, anyone who has a heart to serve, you have these times where you set your hands and you invest until they're raw, and you just, you just want it to happen now. You know, you just, you, you want the guy that's addicted to stop being addicted today. You want that marriage to be fixed like that. You want that person that's really kind of left of center to really be drawn in and, and just go, 
I had this breakthrough in my head and everything's good. You want, you know, the child that's just kind of playing around with things to say, oh, you know what, you're right. I, re- I finally realized that I've been really pushing God aside for this. You know, and, and you want that to happen like this. And there are days where you set your hands to it and you just don't see it. And if you don't read this and take it to heart, man, you'll dry up and crumble up. Because you, it's like, understand, I can't make things bear fruit. But I can keep the seed in my pocket. And the only way it's going to grow there is if it stays long enough to get dirty. But man, when you throw the seed in, you're like, Lord, I'm trusting you. In Psalm 1 where he says that he bears fruit in due season. Let's be honest. As Jesus says to his brothers, he would say to me as well, you know, for you, any time's fine. And I'm like, you're right. But I've learned this. You can't throw a seed and expect to harvest that day as much as I'd like to. I love to go, grow, grow. But what I've learned is when things grow really fast, they tend not to have the roots that are necessary to sustain them. Please hear me in this. Most of the pastors that we've sent out to plant other churches were very slow growers. I mean, I drive them crazy. They move from away from drugs before they were in ministry, you know, to getting out of cigarettes where I'd stick their cigarettes in the toaster. Could you imagine? You know, back in those days we had things called cassette players. You'd be amazing how you could ruin a cassette player by sticking a pack of cigarettes in there. I mean, hypothetically. But when I see where they're at today, unmovable in their walk with Jesus, I just love to say, thank you, Lord. You are a whole lot more patient than I am. And this is what Paul says as we bring this around to close. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, he goes, stop everything. Before you drift off and start nodding, follow me on this. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. We could go, yeah, duh. Of whom I am worst. Arche in the Greek, like architect, archangel, primary. I was the poster child for sinners, Paul would say. Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am worst or chief, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display, listen, listen, check it out, yo, 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 check it. Christ might display his unlimited patience for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. He does not say unlimited grace. Though he's clearly shown that. He doesn't say limited mercy. Man, I should have got pounded, but I didn't. He said limited grace. No, unlimited patience. You know how patience has to be exercised? In time, right? It's like, God, I need patience. God goes, perfect. Can you give it to me now? I'll give it to you later. What? He's like, well, look at it. If time doesn't elapse, you won't even know you have it. I've learned he's never early. Have you learned that yet? And he's never late. That's the comforting part. But he's never early, and that can be a little agitating. So listen, three specific moments. God give, God speak, God save. God give the Passover, give the Lamb of God. That's what John tells us Jesus is. That was the first title he was given when he shows up, right? God give the Lamb of God, the firstborn son, sacrificed for us. Have you accepted that gift? If you have... Well, then God speak, not just to me, through me. How long did it take for me to start to figure out that everything God gives me, he wants me to give away? Have you learned that? God, give me grace 
so I can give it to others. God, give me mercy so that I could issue it to someone else. God, speak to me so I could share it with someone else. God, bring comfort that I could offer comfort. Where in Scripture does God say, get it and just keep it? You know, I'm so selfish. I'll be honest, I'm so selfish that it's so easy for me to go, God, that's all I just want is for me. God's like, you're supposed to be a hose, not a cup. I realize, God, speak. But then God, save well, that's the day where the Lord's going to gather his saints and pull us away before that time of tribulation and things get rough. Please hear me. There is a day coming where we're going to stand before him and the fruit that God is going to show is going to be so amazing. We're going to go, wow, really? I get why the elders fall on their face and throw their crowns before him because we don't deserve those things that he gives us. And he has blessed us He has brought the harvest, and we rejoice in it. There is the point. So let me me say this, and then let's pray. How does that apply to my walk today? Here is everything. The past, the present, and the future. The past, it's the cross where the Lamb of God was sacrificed. The present, God, fill me with your power and endue me with your word to speak the truth. The gospel, and let's start there. And in the future, oh Lord, I can't wait for that day when I stand before you and we see the fruit that this is born. That's it, you guys. That's what this looks like. Now let me ask you as we go to prayer. How are you with the Lamb of God? Have you accepted that gift? Are you trying to earn what God wants, already want to give you? And then I ask, if you have said yes to Jesus, are you just trying to take from God at this point or do you really... I want to take from God's depository to give to others. What I've learned is it's like God gives you his debit card, but he says, you can, you can never max this out. You just can't spend it on yourself. God will take care of that part. Believers, are we praying for the power of God to validate ourselves or to be used to change the world that's so desperately in need of harvesting? You know what happens when fruit's not harvested, right? It rots. God, don't let that be the case here. And there will be a day we'll stand before him. I think, wait a minute. It's the Lamb of God. It's Jesus. That When I look backward, it's all Jesus. Today, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that leads me to Jesus to speak his words. And then finally, I'll stand before the Father with this fruit. And I think, wow, the Trinity involved in these three feasts. And I go, I get it. And here we are. In Deuteronomy 16, saying, God, come quickly. Bear forth fruit until you come. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to say yes to you another day. Thank you, Lord, that the that is you would demand men to come to feast with you. I mean, I think it's kind of it's sad to think that that a perfect awesome, infinite God would have to demand such a thing. I think you should be the one saying, stop coming over. (laughs) Why are you always at my door? And I want to be that person, Lord, that like David would just say, you know what, can I just move in? It would make it this so much easier. We'd be able to feast every day together. We'd be able to enjoy the harvest together. We'd be able to watch you change lives. And I think, Lord, 
Make me so much more like Joshua than Moses, who would go in, hear the, the, your decisions, and take them out, where Joshua would just be just frozen in the tabernacle, not wanting to move. And I think, God, let, me, let that be me. And I could say, God, like David, with one thing I've desired of you. Not of all the things I desire, this is the number one, or it's the top ten, but and the only thing I really want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Oh God, that I could just be with you always. And I realize, Father, that's what heaven is. The fulfilling of that passion to say, oh, you want to live with me? Let's spend eternity together. But here and now, in the time you've given, you've afforded us the luxury of being able to invite others to that feast. And God, I just pray first for every Christian in this room, myself included. Maybe we've gotten so far away from the concept of eternity that we've been sort of trapped under the overcast of the temporary. And, and that last feast reminds us that there's a day we're going to stand before you and this whole world's going to just melt in fervent heat and it's just going to be gone forever. And even the memory of it. And I don't want to do things that are going to burn and not last. I don't want to set my hands to things that are going to be just so feeble and just kindling in the fires of eternity. God, I pray for every believer here, myself included, you rip the scales and the veils off of our eyes for us to see eternity again and to look at every human being from that perspective to recognize the greatest need of saying yes. Yes, they need to be fed, they need to be clothed, they need to be delivered, they need to be pulled out of horrible situations, but for the purpose of an eternal deliverance. Oh God, cleanse our hearts from the infinitely stupid, unnecessary, meaningless, worthless things that we could chase after that only detract and distract us from what really is important. God, while you're doing that in our hearts, the voice goes out now. Are you confident today that you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? That you've accepted his gift on the cross? His death on your behalf. I'm not talking about have you gone to confirmation or have you done this class or that. Jesus has bowed the knee and said, I'm offering you all of this. I've paid your price. I'm asking, will you accept me as your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you're not sure or you're sure you haven't, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that be my prayer now. Let those words be my words, that on this day, the 8th of March, 2015, you will be born again, transformed and made the new creation God intends. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, you know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. We're in full agreement. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong, intended wrong. I'm a mess. But if you really did so love me that you paid all of my, the crimes of my heart upon the cross of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, if you really willingly paid that price already, then I don't want to have to pay it. I don't want to stand before you guilty. I don't want to stand before you a stranger. So, Jesus really did pay that price and asks for me to willingly receive that payment. I willingly receive that payment. 
confessing Jesus as my ransom and Savior. But as the Scripture promised, He rose again on the third day to be the Lord of my life and the architect of my reinvention. Well, then I say yes to my risen Savior and Lord. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you want to actually grant me innocence, I'd be a fool to say no. So I say yes. And I hand you my life now, making everything you intend in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, this is how I'm not seeking to embarrass you. I'm just asking right where you're at. I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. Lord, for every person who has prayed that prayer today, I pray that you would hear that prayer, take it seriously, and now, Lord, fill them with the joy of their salvation. May they hear all the angels in heaven under you who are rejoicing over their choice as you set them now on this beautiful journey of becoming more like you in practical ways, even as you've made them like you positionally through the gift of your son. So cement that. Give them a hunger for your word. Give them a place in fellowship and develop a healthy communication in their prayer life. Jesus, in your name.